So I just want you to imagine for a moment something. I want you to imagine purchasing something that needs to be assembled. And let's say it's something just really significant, okay? Like a log cabin kit. Actually saw one on Friday. 1,200 square feet with a loft and a porch, $38,000. I didn't click buy it now. It's like a dangerous button, you know what I'm saying? Like, whoa. Um, Let's just say you buy that kit, okay? How do you think it'd go if you built the log cabin without paying any attention to what the instructions said? Probably not very good. Now, for some of us, it would go terrible because our sense of carpentry and construction is no good. For some of us, it'd go better because you've got a good sense of those things. But no matter if you're skilled or not, the one who's designed the thing, brothers and sisters, is going to have the best bead on how to construct it. So that it's solid and so that it's sound. Now let's take just a minute and apply this to marriage. As it speaks to human relationships, no relationship on earth could be more significant than this one. Marriage is the most sacred and special relationship on earth. Two different people come together, join their bodies and their hearts in a union designed to last for life. Wow! Now the question is, how can we build our marriages such that they go well? How can we build our marriages such that they are joy-giving, intimacy-producing, long-lasting, God-glorifying? The only way to do it is to follow the plan of the one who designed marriage in the first place. So just like the designer of the log cabin is going to have the best bead on how to build that log cabin, so too God, the creator of all, is the one who's going to have the best bead on how to build your marriage. So the question to ask yourself this morning is, do you want a healthy marriage? Do you want a joyful marriage? Do you want an intimate marriage? Do you want a lasting marriage? God's got a word for you this morning. And listen to me. This text speaks to everybody in the room this morning. If you're relatively early on in marriage or looking towards marriage, there's words to help you build a strong foundation. If you're married longer and things are good, there's words to help you fine-tune. If you're married longer and things aren't good, there's hope. Gospel hope for change, real change and health and flourishing. If you're single, there's fodder for you to pray for your brothers and sisters in this church who are married. And if you're not a Christian, there's a word for you. Because marriage is ultimately a picture of the most relation, most important relationship you could ever have. A relationship with Jesus Christ who offers himself to you who offers to lead you, who offers to love you, if you will submit yourself to him. So let's just get into it. We're jumping back into Ephesians. We've been out for four weeks. So you've slept since Ephesians 5.14. I know that you have it like 
on the tip of your tongue. But for those of you who don't, let me just reorient you. Ephesians is a book with two big halves. First half, chapters 1 through 3, are about what God has done for the church. Theologians call this the indicative. Second half, chapters 4 through 6, are about how the church is to live in response. Theologians call this the imperative. So what God has done, the indicative, 1 through 3, how the church is to respond, the imperative, chapters 4 through 6. And this is why Paul exhorts us concerning how we walk in the opening verse of chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling for one. And four through six is just all about our walk. It's about our way of life. So the first exhortation is to walk in unity. So God reconciled all sorts of different sinners through Jesus Christ into one body. And so he want local churches to reflect that unity. Next, he says, walk as a new man. So if you're a Christian, you can't live like you did when you were a non-Christian. On he goes, right? Walk in love, 5-2. Walk in light, 5-8. Walk in wisdom, 5-15. And then in the last section we covered, Paul finished it with a command to not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. In fact, turn to Ephesians 5-18. Just open up your Bibles. Turn to Ephesians 5-18. Ephesians 5-18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Now, what I said to you last time about being filled with the Spirit is that it's not primarily about a feeling or an emotion. It's about being influenced by the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be increasingly underneath the Spirit's sway, increasingly underneath the Spirit's control, just like you can observe the effects of alcohol in somebody's system, so too you can observe the effects of the Spirit in someone's heart. And so what are the effects of the Spirit? Well, in context, context is always king. In context, it's singing, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's singing. It's giving thanks. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's giving thanks. And it's submission. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the question is, what does it look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? So that's where Paul goes next. So he is going to fill out for us how God would have us to live within the authority structures He's created in the home, so think marriage, parenting, and in the workplace. So that's where we're going to go in the next three weeks. The gospel in marriage, the gospel in parenting, the gospel at work. What does it look like to be a spirit-filled Christian at home and at work? How do we live out our Christian lives in these very practical realms? God's going to tell us. So let's just read the text for this morning, and then we're just going to tease out the various parts. Pick up in 522. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, two big points for you this morning. Here's the blueprint. You can open up your bulletin, and it can help you follow along. You can see where we're going. Number one, wives, submit to your husbands, 22 through 24. Number two, husbands, love your wives, 25 through 33. So let's just look at that first point. We see it right off the bat in verse 22, there in black and white. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, we have to ask right away, what does it mean to submit? What does it mean to submit? Well, it means to recognize and live under the God-given authority that God has given to husbands in marriage. To submit to somebody is to recognize that they're in a position of authority over you. Now, I realize, even as I say that, that there may be almost an allergic or, or fearful reaction to this because the word submit sounds, at least in our culture, negative, demeaning, maybe oppressive. But as we go, we're going to see clearly that according to the Bible, it is a beautiful thing. Wives submitting to your husbands, recognizing and joyfully living under their leadership, authority, protection, and care is a wonderful, life-giving, God-glorifying thing. So we've got this call to wives to submit. And note that it's not a call to submit to all men, but to your own husbands. But note also what this is grounded in. In other words, what's the reason for this submission? Is it that women are inferior to men? Is it that men are somehow better? Well, no, it's grounded in gospel realities, which, by the way, this is just the beginning of the rich truth that we're going to see all over this passage, that marriage... And our roles in marriage are a picture of spiritual truth. Wives' submission to their husbands is grounded in Christ's headship of the church. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. In other words, just as it pleased God to make Christ the head over the church his bride, so too it's pleased God placed man over the head of his wife, his bride. And this headship is representative of leadership and authority. How do we know that? Well, because of verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So you see, this is clear. In our marriages, God has given us roles to play. The husband, like Christ, is the head of the church, its leader, The husband is the head of his wife, her leader. And just as the church follows the leadership of Christ in all things, so too wives are to follow their husband's leadership in all things. Now, this is actually a very simple truth. 
It's very easy to grasp. But I realize because of the culture we're in, because of the abuses of leadership that we see, and frankly because of our own prideful hearts, this truth can be really hard to swallow and it can be misunderstood. So let me just take a few minutes to address just a couple of things. You're going to see there in your notes, I got a spot entitled on courage, clarifications, and a caveat. I'm a preacher, so I have to alliterate. Courage, clarifications, and a caveat. Let's just talk about courage. So courage is needed here, okay? Courage is needed here, brothers and sisters, because we live in a culture increasingly hostile to the concept of authority. You should know this, okay? In different cultures at different times in history, authority and the concept of structural authority is viewed differently. And today in the West, if you don't know, authority has a pretty bad rep. And let me just kind of walk out a test case with you. What words come to your mind when you think of the word authority? What words come to your mind? So, is it? So, sheet of paper, line down the middle, two, two lists. When I say authority, what comes to your mind? Is it this? Blessing. Joy-giving. Protection. Freedom. Life. Or, overreach. Abuse. Oppression. Heavy-handed. My guess is that for most of you, more words in the second list popped into your mind than words in the first list. Why is that? Friends, it's because you're just preloaded to think that way given the day in which we live. That's the lens that our culture has right now through a godless secular worldview. But you have got to have courage to cast off that cultural lens, put on your biblical lens, because the Bible says that authority is a wonderful thing because authority is God's idea. Authority comes from God himself who has authority over all things and who mediates his authority through human institutions for our good. So he mediates authority through civil government. Civil government is a good thing and their authority is a good thing. He mediates his authority through husbands in marriage, through parents at home, through elders in local churches. All of these authority structures come from God and they're good because he is good. Amen. So we need courage to not think about authority as the culture thinks about it, but to think about authority as the Bible thinks about it and to not have an allergic reaction, but to just say, whatever the Bible says, I want to be excited about because it's good and it's for my good. So we need courage. And we also need to make a clarification. A couple here. First, a husband's leadership isn't based on his ability or his knowledge. So sometimes, brothers, I come across you... And frankly, your wives know a whole lot more about the Bible than you do. They've been walking with the Lord longer. They know more than you. They're more spiritually mature than you are. And you feel intimidated and you feel inadequate to take leadership because of those things. Brother, let me encourage you. Whether or not you feel qualified is irrelevant. You are the leader of your home. God has placed you in that place of privilege and responsibility. That weighty and sober burden and let me just tell you your wife will be blessed beyond measure if you simply embrace this role 
So, so don't stay in the background out of fear of not doing it well. Just embrace the role. Do the best job you can. And she will love you for it. And she will respect you for it. So a husband's leadership is not based on superior knowledge or ability. Second clarification. Difference in role doesn't mean anyone is lesser in dignity, worth, and honor. This is important. I think an error made by many is to wrongly think that if a husband is the leader of his wife and the wife is called to submit to the husband's authority, then that makes the wife unequal or it makes her less than. That is not right at all. Leadership and submission have nothing to do with value and worth in the eyes of God. Men and women are absolutely equal in value and dignity and worth. There is a difference in this. This is a difference in role, not in essence. This is a difference in role, not in essence. There's a world of difference between those two things. And now let me give you a caveat. Ladies, your submission to your husbands is not unlimited or unconditional. So your submission to your husbands is not unlimited or unconditional. So remember a couple of things. When you follow your husband's lead, who are you really following? Who are you ultimately following? Are you following your husband? Yes. But, but who ultimately? God himself, right? God mediates his authority through your husband so following your husband's lead is really about following God's lead, which paves the way for clarity that your submission to your husband is not ultimate or unconditional. Yes, you should follow his lead, but you should never, ever, ever follow his lead into sin. So if a husband forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, then you don't follow him in that, ladies. So we see this in how the disciples related to governing authorities, right? The authorities told them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus in Acts 5. What is that? That's forbidding what God commands. But what did the apostles say? We must obey God rather than men. So they were clear, if the governing authority clashed with what God commanded, then God's authority trumped the delegated authority, right? So what does this look like in marriage? Well, let's say a husband forbids a wife from going to church. That's forbidding what God commands. Or let's say a husband wants to do something in the realm of intimacy that the wife believes to be wrong. Well, that would be commanding what God forbids because it's sin to go against your conscience. In situations like this, ladies, you need to conscientiously not submit to your husbands because to do so would be sin against God. Your husband's authority is not ultimate or unlimited. And let me also say this. This shouldn't have to be said, but it is better to say it. If you are ever in fear of your physical safety, you call the police and you call the elders. God would never have you to be abused. That is a heinous and wicked violation of the relationship God intends between a husband and a wife. And, and nowhere do we see just more clearly how dishonoring something like that would be than by looking at what God commands for husbands. Which is the second part of this text. So let's just turn there now. Husbands, what's your role? Well, look at verse 25. Husbands, 
love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, honestly, folks, this is where the curtain is going to start to get pulled back. And we're going to begin to see just how wonderful God's design for marriage is. Men, God's call upon you is to love your wives, and God in His goodness fills it out for you. I don't know about you, I need things to be made simple for me. (laughs) Okay, what does it mean to love my wife? Whoa, like that's complicated. But in His goodness, He tells us what that love should look like. He gives us an example, and He takes us in hand kindly as a father to His son, and He says, here... I want you to know what I mean when I say love. I mean you should love your wife like Christ loved the church. So how did Christ love the church? Well, the text tells us. So let's just listen. We're going to learn some important things about God here. And then let's draw out the principle being taught for husbands. Let's just read 25 through 27 again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So what's this all about? Well, it's about what Christ did on the cross. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. That's the cross. On the cross, Jesus gave himself up for his bride. He died for his bride. And why did he do that? That he might sanctify her. Now, most of the times, when you hear the word sanctify, you probably think about the process, right? The process of being made holy over time after justification, That's probably what you think about when you think about sanctify. But that's not always how the term is used. Sometimes the term is used right alongside justification, and it communicates the same idea of justification. Think about 1 Corinthians 6, for instance. Paul mentions all sorts of heinous types of sin, and then he says, And such were some of you before you became a believer, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, sometimes the word sanctify means the same thing as justify. And that's how it's being used here. Jesus gave himself up on the cross in order that he might sanctify the church. In order that he might make her holy. And how does he make her holy? By cleansing her with the washing of the water with the word. This gets to the very heart of Christianity. The reality is every person without exception is spiritually dirty in the sight of God. So we are like kids unfit to sit at the dinner table because we're covered in filth from playing outside. We're unfit to be at the presence of God at His table in heaven because we're covered with the filth from our sin. And that's why Jesus came and He gave Himself up for us on the cross to cleanse us. To cleanse us. You remember what that old hymn says? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood. What? Lose all their guilty stains. 
Jesus died in order that he might cleanse us. And he died in order that he might present us to himself as a beautiful bride in the presence of God in a coming day. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she, we, his church, might be holy and without blemish. So why did Jesus give himself up for the church? That we might be saved cleansed from our sin, clothed in Christ's righteousness, fit for heaven. Now, what does this have to do with husbands? Are you the saviors of your wife? No. (laughs) It means the love we're commanded to is sacrificial love. That's the point, isn't it? Why did Christ condescend from heaven to earth? Why did he do that? In order to be served? No. He came in order to serve. To give his life upon the cross for the eternal well-being of his bride, the church. So, brothers, men, God's call upon you, me, us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I don't think there could be a higher, weightier, more wonderful call than this. What does it look like in practice? It means that your leadership of your home, in that leadership, you are not thinking primarily about yourself. You are thinking about the flourishing of your wife. And so your motivation in leadership is not self-gratification or self-indulgence. It's selfless sacrifice with a view towards service. Your motivation in leadership is not, how can I serve myself? It is, how can I serve my wife? Just like Jesus was fundamentally oriented towards the well-being of his church, so too we are to be oriented toward the well-being of our wives. And let's just think about our heart attitudes for just a second, okay? Brothers, This cannot be done begrudgingly or half-heartedly or cold-heartedly, okay? We, We must engage this task with earnestness. Just ask yourself, was Jesus complaining when he came to save his bride, right? Was Jesus just doing it out of duty, right? No. Out of his love for her, out of his desire for her, out of his longing for intimacy with her, he willingly left heaven and laid down his life on the cross. Could God have come up with a more gracious and wonderful plan for how husbands should treat their wives? No. Is it easy? No. It is not easy because it rubs up against the grain of remaining sin, which is geared towards self. But it is wonderful because, brothers, it makes us more like our Savior. And it leads us to the marriage that we all want. A joyful and an intimate one. Just think about this for just a second. Every one of you who are a Christian, think about this. What's the response in your heart when you think about Christ's love for you? What's the response in your heart when you think about how he's accepted you? With all your warts, with all your failings. How he knows that you're a total hot mess, but he loves you in a way, anyway. 
What's your instinctual response when you dwell on those things? You want to open yourself up to Him. You want to draw closer to Him. You want to respond to Him. Husbands, when you love your wives like Christ loved the church, intimacy is the sure fire fruit. So just like, you, know, you don't have to raise your hand. Who wants an intimate marriage, right? Okay. Okay. If, if, I'm not going to ask for participation, but everybody wants to. The only reason why you wouldn't is because you're so discouraged if it's not a reality. It can be a reality through the gospel. So husbands, our love for our wives is to be sacrificial. And it is also to be what I'm calling a one flesh love. So just pick up 28 through 31 again. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we got this idea here, husbands, of treating our wives as our own body. So just ask yourself, how do I treat my own body? Well, you treat it well, right? You treat it well. You take care of your own body. I just want you to carry that, that idea over into marriage. <laughs> You're to treat your wife with the same care and intentionality that you give to yourself. You're to nourish her. You're to take care of her. And clearly this means so much more than putting food on the table and roofs overheads, right? So brothers, I'm not downplaying the significance and goodness of physical provision. But if that's all you're doing, if you're not nourishing your wife spiritually, engaging in spiritual conversation, spending time in prayer with her, prioritizing the Word of God and the Church of God in your life, then you're not nourishing her. You're neglecting her, and God is displeased with that. And perhaps you're neglecting her because you're neglecting yourself in this way. Maybe you actually aren't caring for your own body as you should. I know this is a reality for some of you, and brothers, I pray that you'd see the seriousness of this and repent. Brothers, how can you lead your wife spiritually if you're not engaged yourself with God? You can't. You must engage with the Lord, brothers, if you are to nourish your wife as God would have you to. So nourish your wife. Cherish your wife. So, along this idea of cherishing, let me just ask you another question. What's your most treasured possession? So, you know the one that you you keep in a safe place, high where the kids can't touch it if they're young, right? The, the, the one that you make sure, the, the particular possession of yours that you make sure is, is protected and cared for, the particular possession of yours that you want to show friends and family. What's your most treasured possession? So, for me, it might be my dad's Harley that he gave me a couple of years ago. So I, I baby that thing. I wash that thing. 
sometimes I may spend more time washing that and I should be doing other things, but let's just ignore that for a moment. I buff the chrome. I carefully winterize it when writing season is over. When people come to my house and they see it and they're like, oh, that's yours. I'm like, hey, you want to hear it start? You want to go for a ride? So it's just something I cherish. Brothers, this is how we're called to relate to our wives. We're to cherish them. Your wife should know that there's no one on God's green earth that matters more to her than matters more to you than her. There's no one more special. There's no one you love more. There's no one you'd rather be with. You are to cherish her. So do you cherish her? And in verse 31 and 32, Paul makes these incredible final reminders to us. When he tells us that marriage itself, he quotes Genesis 3 about a man leaving his father and mother and being joined to his wife and the two becoming one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 3. And then he concludes the matter and he says that the mystery is that marriage itself is a picture of the gospel. So marriage itself is not something that God just thought, hey, this would be cool. What if we, what if we make a guy and a gal? Hey, Holy Spirit, you know, eternal son, you know, the, the council of the Trinity deciding, let's just make a man and a woman and let's put them together and let's call the thing marriage. No, that's not what God did in eternity past. What God did in eternity past is he said, how can I display the eternal glorious relationship between Jesus Christ and his love and sacrifice and leadership and care for the church? And how can I display the church's love and submission to and following of Christ? How can I display their intimate union? How can I display their love through marriage? Marriage is intentionally designed to point us to to be a living parable of the world to the world of the reality of Christ's relationship to his church. Just a side note, this is why we can't redefine it in any way that we want because it's what God deemed it to be and he says it's a picture of Jesus' relationship to the church. So we can't redefine it. It can't be homosexual marriage or anything like that. It's just not possible. It it mars the truth to which it points. So theologically, that's what it is. And practically, how it falls to us is that husbands, verse 33, he just concludes it. I I love simple, right? Sometimes I I need to have simple. Well, God gives us simple in case we've missed it. So, So he started the passage in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's the the word to the wives. To the husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives. And then he circles back in 33, and he's just like, okay, if anybody got lost in the middle, just going to help you out. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the divine plan for marriage. This is how to have a God-glorifying, intimacy-producing, joy-giving, long-lasting, flourishing marriage. This is it. This is it. And let me just speak a few words by way of application. First of all, if you're not a Christian, I just want to tell you this morning, there is someone who offers himself to you unreservedly. There is someone who offers himself to you in love. There is someone who offers himself to you who is so wonderful, you, you, you couldn't even imagine deserving him because you don't. But he offers himself to you, and his name is Jesus Christ. He offers to love you. He offers to pay the price for your sins. He offers to cleanse you. He offers to exchange your filthy rags of unrighteousness, which disqualify you from being in the presence of God, to exchange that for robes of his righteousness so that you will stand before the throne in glory and joy and peace. And he offers to lead you throughout the course of your life, to nourish you, to care for you, to cherish you. This is Jesus' offer to you, sinner. So if you're not a Christian, how do you view Christianity? Do you view it as a bunch of rules, do's and don'ts, going to lose your freedom, not going to be fun, all that stuff? You're just confused. Christianity is Jesus saying, I will love you. I will give myself for you. I will lead you, cherish you, nourish you, take care of you, and ensure that I bring you to myself in a coming day. The question is, will you follow me? Will you put your trust in the cleansing word of the gospel? Will you put your trust in me? Will you follow me? Will you submit to me? That's the question. So my encouragement to you is to submit yourself to Jesus Christ, the greatest lover, protector, and provider the world has ever known. And to those of you brothers and sisters who are married, let me just remind us of a couple of things as it relates to this and marriage. Number one, this takes work. So, this takes work. If you're a notator, just write that down. This takes work. So living out these roles is not automatic. It's not easy. Uh, you know, talk to my wife. Uh, talk to me. Talk to any mature brother or sister who's trying to live out the roles God's given to us in marriage. We will all tell you, yeah, it's, it's not easy. It takes work. It also takes grace. So it takes work. That's number one. It takes grace. That's number two. No husband lives up to this call. No wife lives up to this call. That's why we need grace. That's why we have grace. That's why we have the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you feel like your marriage has just withered for years of neglect and disinterest, there is grace for you too. There is no marriage in this room, if you're a Christian, that is beyond the hope of the restoration of the gospel. There is no marriage beyond the hope of the restoration of the gospel. It takes work, it takes grace, it takes the church. It takes work, it takes grace, it takes the church. 
So God has given to us the church to help us see where we are not holding up our end of the bargain and to encourage us and to instruct us and to build us up in ways in which we should relate and live to one another. So if you need help and you know you need help, then it's time to stop just thinking that and it's time to talk to me or another one of the elders or a spiritually mature brother or sister that you trust and just say, all right, here's the deal. We're not doing well. It's not going to shock them. And then we're just going to see how we can help. It takes work. It takes grace. It takes the church. Stop pointing fingers. That's the next one. Stop pointing fingers. It's his fault. It's her fault. I would if she would. But she hasn't, so I don't. I would if he did, but he doesn't, so I won't. I would, but I know it's not going to change, so I'm not going to try. Just all of that stuff. Just, just dispense with it. Just dispense with it. Put it away. And instead, ask yourself, how am I not living up to God's glorious design for marriage for myself? And let me confess that. Let me seek to repent from that. Let me seek to try to relate to my spouse better. And then the other spouse, do the same thing. How am I not living up to the design and the standard that God has given? Let me get clarity on that, repent of that, and seek to grow in that. So stop pointing fingers at the other and instead just focus on yourself. And then finally, intimacy is the fruit of all of this. Intimacy is the fruit of all of this. Where you see intimate marriages in this church, it is the result of labor that that brother and sister have put in over the years to love one another and to live with one another in a God-glorifying, honoring way. So if you don't feel like your marriage is intimate, why don't you just start by reminding yourself that God's grace is always available to you. Confess your sin that you know of to God and to your partner. And then come and talk to a brother or sister that you respect and see how you can move forward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his love for his bride displayed in the gospel. Lord, help us, your church, to declare that gospel in word and in deed to a lost and dying world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.